Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Steve Oldham to the show. Steve Oldham is the CEO of Carbon Engineering and brings more than 20 years of executive experience to CE's team, stemming from previous roles in technology, robotics, and aerospace sectors. Steve has held a variety of senior executive positions across Canada and the U.S., covering general management, business development, and strategy. Steve has also secured financing from government and commercial sources for a variety of complex technologies, including several large satellite programs. Steve, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, thank you. Steve, where in the world are you? So right now I'm in uh, beautiful Vancouver on the west coast of Canada. How's the weather up there? (laughs) It's um, a typical June day, uh, by which I mean it's cold and rainy. Uh, We we have wonderful weather in in July, August, September, but June is famous for being not so good. So that's not a Vancouver accent you have. No, I'm originally from Manchester in England. So does the weather remind you of home? Indeed, especially on uh, on days like today. You know, I grew up in southeast London and I tell my kids, I said, I remember going to school in the morning and the bottom two inches of my pants would be wet. And by the time it dried, it was time to come home again. (laughs) Yeah, well, Vancouver is pretty much like that. I tell people that, you know, it's not true that it rains many times in Vancouver. It it just rains once a year. It starts in (laughs) (laughs) I like that. So, Steve. I like to open my show by asking my guests the following question. If you were asked to share something interesting about yourself, what would it be? Wow, that's, a, that's an interesting question. Um, so I think, you know, I, I always like to tell a story about one particular moment in my career, and I'll, I'll say very briefly. So I used to work for a company called McDonald Detweiler. They're a Canadian um, technology company. And for a period of my time, I was working on uh, satellites, And I was also heading our robotics division that um, I did, amongst other things, uh, brain surgery. So I had this wonderful time period where people would ask me what I do. And I'd say, well, you know, it's not rocket science. It's not brain surgery. It's both. (laughs) And what part of that, um, like, operation were were you working on? So um, we did radar satellites, and then uh, we actually, uh, the company, the MDA at the time, we built the world's first robotic brain surgery robot, um, which could do brain surgery on patients who were discharged the very same day. Amazing. That is amazing. And to see how far that technology has come today, where they, I think, use Da Vinci to do it remotely, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, correct. Uh, da Vinci is more um, knee surgery and, and other types of surgery, but uh, uh, what we did was was brains. That's really amazing. So technical background, shifting gears a little bit, can you share a little bit about your current organization? Yeah, so I'm uh, I'm 
the CEO of a company called Carbon Engineering. Uh, we're based in Squamish, British Columbia, which is just north of Vancouver. And we are one of a very, very small number of companies around the world developing what I think is going to be one of the most critical technologies for the 21st century, uh, which is direct air capture, pulling CO2 directly out of the atmosphere. So I'm really excited about direct air capture. And I know Project Drawdown, the book, has listed it as one of the future technologies to watch. Can you share some detail about how exactly your operation works? Yeah, so, you know, maybe we we should start thinking about the macro problem of of climate change first and before I, I, I dive into how direct air capture specifically works. So the problem we have with, um, with climate change has come because we've taken carbon out of the geosphere underground and we've put it directly into the atmosphere. Without that intervention, the planet's normal process where carbon is circulated between the atmosphere and the biosphere would just keep going. But we've overloaded it by bringing all this CO2 directly out from under the planet uh, and into the atmosphere. So given that we have that challenge and there, there's a multitude of scientific studies, I, th I think everybody now understands that we've created this problem. We need to do something about it. When you look at the, the challenge of climate change, what you hear often is people saying, well, we've got to stop all emissions of CO2. And that's true, but it's very hard. I'll, I'll describe why in a second. But the other thing that people don't fully understand is the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere that causes our climate change problem, 95% of that CO2 is already there. We emitted it yesterday and the day before and the day before that during this podcast and all the way back until the start of the Industrial Revolution. So, so much of the problem is gone. Even if we stop emitting CO2 today, we still have a climate change problem. So while things like electric cars and, and so on that, that eliminate emissions, renewable power, they're all tremendously important. We absolutely have to do them. What about the 95% of the problem that's already up there? And that's what direct air capture aims to do. It aims to pull CO2 straight out of the atmosphere and put it back underground where it came from in the first place. So how effective is one of your units at doing that? Yeah, so it's um, so CO2 in the atmosphere is about 400 parts per million, uh, which is uh, a very small amount, even though it gives us this huge climate problem. To give your, your listeners a sense of what 400 parts per million is, imagine taking a single drop of ink and dropping it into an Olympic swimming pool. And then coming back a week later and trying to pull the drop of ink back out again. That's the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere, 400 parts per million. So what our plants do is they pull air in through a, essentially a large fan and we react the air with a chemical process. And the chemical process strips about 70 to 80 percent of the CO2 out of the air as it passes through the fan. So what comes out of the back of one of our plants is air minus about 70 to 80 percent of the co2 and then what do you do with the co2 so you can do lots of things with co2 so if you are if your motivation is to um, produce a negative emission that's the opposite of an emission of co2 from the planet a negative emission it goes either way then you would take that co2 and you would um, pressurize it and you would bury it back underground 
You can do that into geological formations. You can do it into saline aquifers. There is lots and lots of storage space underground for CO2 to be put safely and permanently back into the planet where it came from in the first place. Alternatively, you can take that CO2 and make a product. So, for example, hydrocarbons. So we all know hydrocarbons like gasoline, diesel, kerosene. So if you take CO2 and you combine it with hydrogen, uh, you can make a synthetic crude, which can be converted into any of those things, gasoline, hydrogen, uh, sorry, gasoline, um, diesel, or kerosene. So making a synthetic fuel that can replace fossil fuel is another thing you can do with CO2 from the atmosphere. And is there a demand right now in the market for CO2? So there is, um, but there are much, much cheaper sources of CO2 than pulling it out of the atmosphere. So, for example, you can drill a hole in the ground and there are CO2 domes, basically wells of CO2 underground. So it's quite easy and cheap to get CO2 if you want CO2. But, of course, that doesn't help our climate change problem. So the best type of CO2 to use if you want to address climate change is CO2 that's already been released into the atmosphere. You're essentially recycling it. It's really interesting. So your plant size, how big is a footprint? Uh, so physical size. So we baseline a plant of one megaton per year of CO2 capture. And again, to give you a sense of what that is, that's 40 million trees uh, worth of CO2 capture. And a physical plant is about 60 acres. So from, uh, compared to you know, the concentration of, of trees, uh, which are an effective form of carbon capture, uh, our plant packs a lot more trees into a small number of, uh, into a smaller space. I love the idea. Would you position or put these plants like strategically, geographically located in certain areas? How does this work? So the, the best thing, so firstly, um, CO2 in the atmosphere is, is uniformly distributed. So from a capture perspective, it doesn't matter if you put one of these plants in the middle of the Sahara Desert or in downtown Beijing, you're going to capture roughly the same amount of CO2 um, uh, because atmospherically, CO2 is rapidly distributed by winds, by movement of the atmosphere. So it really doesn't matter where you put the plant. And that's really good news because it means you could establish a network of these plants across the planet. The best place to put them is right on top of where you're going to put the CO2. So, for example, the first plant that we've announced is going to be in Texas, and it's going to be right on top of a geological formation. And then we capture the CO2, and without needing pipelines or anything similar, uh, we put the CO2 back underground again. Well, welcome to Texas. Where in Texas are you doing it? I can't tell you that, I'm afraid. That's confidential at the moment. <laughs> okay, well, I look forward to hearing about it or reading about it. Um, is there a way to make it a floating plant? Um, I mean, so there's no, there's no inherent reason why you wouldn't, but what you need is a reasonable amount of, of uh, area touching the air. So what do I mean by that? Because it's 400 parts per million. One of our plants looks like a huge uh, quantity of large fans because the more air you touch, the more CO2 you capture. So, yes, there's no reason you could build one of these things offshore if you wanted, um, but it wouldn't be as, uh, depends on your perspective, it wouldn't look as nice as some of those offshore um, uh, wind facilities, for example. Understood. Understood. 
Now, did you say 40 million trees earlier? Yes, correct. So setting up or installing one of your plants is like having a small forest somewhere, anywhere you want. Is that correct? Yeah. Um, so trees play a really important role in the natural process of uh, removing CO2 from the atmosphere. Um, however, there are two fundamental problems we have with, with trees. Firstly, you know, their life cycle, they take a long time to grow. And unfortunately, they, they die or they burn or they're cut down. So you're not permanently storing the CO2. It's a temporary storage mechanism. Uh, and the second problem with trees is the amount of land they require. So the um, uh, scientists, uh, the world scientists, the IPCC, excuse me, the IPCC, did a study looking at how many trees would you need to capture all the CO2 from the atmosphere that we need to. And they calculated that we'd need three trillion more trees. It's just a staggering amount of space. So um, so we, we're big fans of trees. We all should try and preserve and, and plant as many trees as we can. But we're going to need something more than just tree planting to address our climate change problem. That is an amazing number. Three trillion, is that what you said? Yeah, there's roughly a trillion trees in the world today, apparently. Wow. Well, switching gears a little bit, you know, you kind of touched on climate change earlier. And the crux of our conversation is the why behind what you do. Now, you've taken on this very adventurous project. What's the why? What drives you, Steve? So, um, I mean, I'll start with, if you like, the obvious, but it's, but it's very real. You know, this is a problem we have to solve. Uh, you know, I look at the, the current challenge we have with the COVID pandemic, and we all scratch our heads and we all wish that we'd done something in advance to make pandemics much more controllable. We're all dealing with the impact of this now, and it's massive economically. It's massive on people's lifestyles. And God, we wish we'd done something about it in advance. Climate change is the same. It's creeping up on us every single year. It's silent. You don't see it immediately, but it's gradually going to erode the value of the lifestyle that we all enjoy. So when you look at um, passing on the planet and passing on the economy to the next generation, whether it's your kids, my kids, somebody else's kids, the grandkids, we all have a responsibility in my mind to pass on a planet that is no worse than the one we took on. And the real challenge of climate change is it's beyond everybody's horizon. So it's beyond the horizon of today's president or the prime minister of England or the prime minister of Canada. You know, the impact won't be fed in that, won't be felt in that political timeline. It's beyond the planning horizon of most companies. Most companies look out five years, 10 years maybe. It's beyond the planning horizon of our large institutions like central banks. So because the impact is felt in the future, but is beyond today's planning horizon, very little is done to really meaningfully address the problem today. And what drew me into, into carbon engineering was, you know, this is a technology that would give us a way to solve the problem. So for me, it's, it's, it's almost an obligation to, to do my best to work for a company that, that is working on that type of problem. I love that idea about an obligation. As an interviewer, it's my job to push just a little bit deeper and ask, I understand the obligation in carbon engineering, the technology is phenomenal. 
there's an opportunity cost to doing this. Why this particular project? So, um, so I'll answer that question just a little bit more generically. And uh, I have some really good data that I can use. So uh, Goldman Sachs, everybody understands, knows Goldman Sachs, very highly credible um, uh, analyst. So what they did is they looked at what is the cost of eliminating every type of carbon emission on the planet. So if you start easy, there are many ways we can reduce our carbon emission and actually save money. So, for example, turn off the lights, turn down the thermostat, put an extra jumper on. You reduce carbon emissions and you save money. Then you start heading into things like electric cars. So buying an electric car costs you more money initially. Uh, over time, you save. There's the electricity cost, but you no longer use gasoline or diesel. So that there's a cost to um, eliminate that emission. But then you, you head into harder and harder and harder sources of CO2 to emit. And when they did that calculation, they worked out that if you look at the cost of eliminating every emission on the planet, they worked it out as $20 trillion per year, stopping every emission at source. So when you, when you assess that, you realize that that's obviously horribly unaffordable. So what does direct air capture do for you? It allows you to eliminate any emission of any type from anywhere on the planet at any moment in time because you're pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere. So we expect, uh, I'll use an example of cost. We expect the cost to be $150 per tonne to eliminate any emission. So when you now take that Goldman Sachs report and you say to yourself, okay, the maximum I ever have to pay is $150 a tonne. When you do that analysis, the cost to address climate change drops by fourfold to $5 trillion per year. It's still a massive number, but there's no technology that can make as material an impact on the cost of addressing climate change than direct air capture because it gives you an alternative. It, it caps the cost of fixing climate change by saying any emission anywhere we can eliminate for $150. So the, the example, just to, always helpful to, to see an example, let's look at aviation. So aviation is a significant CO2 emitter, um, but it's also an essential industry. So how do you solve CO2 emissions in, in aviation? So you could replace all the fuel with a synthetic fuel made out of corn or ethanol or something similar, but the cost is huge. Or you could replace every plane on the planet with electric planes that are big enough to fly across the Atlantic and have enough power. Massive, massive cost. Or don't. Instead, allow aviation to use fossil fuel, but for every molecule of CO2 that aviation emits, pull another one back out of the sky again using direct air capture. And that way you cap the cost at $150 a tonne. It's much, much cheaper in the long run than many, many other ways of addressing climate change. I really appreciate you sharing that data. And for those of you listening, when Steve said, put on a jumper, let me translate that to American. <laughs> it's a cardigan or a sweater. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the translation. Of course, you're welcome. So Steve, on this journey, what are some of the learnings you've had or surprise moments? So, um, you know, one of the, one of the things that I've most enjoyed. Um, so we're working with 
some of the largest energy companies in the world, uh, Occidental, Chevron, BHP, for example. And one of the things that I've seen very clearly is the recognition in those companies that they have to find a way to transition their businesses and the energy sector on which we all depend. Let's not kid ourselves. We all need energy. Uh, our way of life, our economy requires energy. Um, so those companies looking at how can they assist in a transition so that we can continue to provide the energy the planet needs for prosperity and, and health and way of life, but also do so in a carbon neutral way. So I'm a, I'm a big fan of those in the energy sector who are actively working to change their industry and bring all the knowledge and experience they have to addressing how to bring technologies like direct air capture into the market. So that's, um, that's number one. I think number two is this really what's a very disturbing point about the fact that direct air capture, sorry, the climate change is in the future in many people's minds. It's not a problem to solve today. And, you know, we would all, all the, your listeners who have kids, we'd all say we'd do anything for our kids. We wouldn't hesitate to, to put ourselves out to help our kids. Um, but collectively as a society, we won't solve climate change for them. That's crazy. Uh, we need to be doing everything we can to fix this problem. So I think that's my other surprise or learning is the degree to which, unfortunately, our society is willing to to just pass this on as a problem and, and not address it. You know, I agree. And I feel like what you're referring to is some of this problem around there's no immediate incentive. People don't experience it immediately, unless, of course, you're living in areas that are prone to flooding or really high smog. Most people don't experience, especially in the West, we don't experience on a daily basis what it's like to experience, you know, climate change. And I think, I think there's a way to translate that or show that more viscerally. People might be more willing to do that. Yeah, I, so, there's an analogy I um, I use, Raj, which is the uh, the water treatment industry. So if you go back um, 100 and a bit more years, uh, water used to provide a significant health hazard, typhoid, cholera, whatever it may. Uh, whatever it may be, was in water. So cities, people would, would get ill. Many people would die because of infected water. So what happened is some clever guy figured out the technology, and we now build water treatment plants across the planet. And people expect clean water wherever they go. And one of our last remaining to-do lists uh, is to make sure that uh, every person on the planet has access to clean water. So in the 21st century, our problem is the air. The CO2 in the air is going to create a similar massive impact. So we need an air treatment infrastructure going forward. But the big difference, you and I could see the effects of water treatment not being done. You and I could see the people that we know in a city getting ill with cholera or typhoid. So we demand action. Climate change takes longer, uh, and its effect will be felt much, much stronger over many, many years. Um, but we can't see it directly. So that's uh, I use the analogy of water treatment both to demonstrate that this is a problem we need to solve. Just as we solve water treatment, this can be done. We have the technology, 
But I also use it to emphasize the difference that people can see the impacts of, of non-clean water, but they can't always see the impacts of climate change. So agree. So let's say you had a magic wand. How many of your facilities do you think you'd like to see across the world? So our business model is to license our technology to anybody who wants to use it. So we're happy to provide our technology to companies and governments around the world uh, to, to build these types of plants. Uh, I go back to what I said earlier on, on, you know, what is the incremental cost of stopping an emission? So you really want to feel direct air capture for wherever the cost is greater to stop an emission than it is to capture CO2. So when you do the analysis and work all that through, it works out to be about 12,000 of these plants is what is needed to solve the CO2 footprint that we can't solve with replacing uh, going to renewable electricity, putting on an extra sweater or cardigan um, or whatever it may be. Uh, 12,000 is in the big picture, really not that many. Um, and of course, the plants just operate and run and run and run for many, many years. Well, 12,000 sounds like you have your work cut out for you. And I look forward to seeing how you, you know, get those out in the market and see what happens. Yes, it'll certainly keep everybody at the company busy. But but because we license, it's um, it's a question of really of how many partners uh, we can find and, and how many plants we can build in parallel. Um, so our first one will be operational probably 2024. That'll be the one megaton plant uh, that I talked about earlier on. We have a, a pilot plant fully working already in British Columbia. Uh, we have a website. People can go and look at videos of it. Um, but yeah, to really make a material impact, we need to be building these plants across the planet. And I will put a link to your website and also, more interestingly, your TED Talk, which I really enjoyed. So I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. Right. Steve, the last question I have for you is, if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? You know, I think, so on a personal level, uh, it would be to... To work on something, if you have the chance to work on something that is truly worthy uh, and truly makes a difference. You know, I consider myself very fortunate to be in the position that I'm in, but also a lot of responsibility in the position that I'm in, um, in, in trying to bring this technology to fruition and into the market. So on a personal level, if you have the chance to work on something that can materially impact and benefit people. I, th I think it's I think it's so important. And the second thing uh, that I would say is, you know, climate change is a huge problem, but we can fix it. We do have the technology. We have the storage to put CO two back underground again. We know how to capture it. It's simply a question of choice. So, would we rather that our government spent two or three percent of GDP on some other activity? Or would we rather that they were spending 2 or 3% of GDP on fixing the planet for our children? And that's my main message that I want people to take away. We can fix this. The technologies exist. It's just a question of choice. You know, I really appreciate you sharing that last part. And without giving away too much from your TED Talk, because I really want the audience to go watch it, can you share the numbers regarding, you know, you gave some percentages specifically around GDP and one of the most important days in, in the year? and how those numbers could translate into, you know, climate change? Yeah, so uh, again, they're not, uh, they're not my numbers, but I think it's a really useful example. 
So um, to, to significantly reduce the impact of climate change, not to eliminate it completely, but to significantly reduce it would take between one and two percent of GDP. What do we spend on Christmas every year? It's about three percent of GDP. So we could replace Christmas. I don't want to be the guy who goes on the radio and, and <laughs> should cancel Christmas. But, you know, we spend more on Christmas across the planet than we do on what would be required to make a material impact on addressing climate change. I think you also mentioned alcohol too, right? Yeah, I, I can't remember. I can't remember the alcohol. I think uh, I think it's uh, greater than the alcohol budget, um, and also greater than the amount of money we spend. Sorry, less than the amount of money we spend on coffee a year. Less than the amount of money we spend on alcohol. Um, so, like I said, choices. Well, I appreciate that, Steve. I so enjoy speaking with you. Is there anything I should have asked or explored before we go? No, I think you were very thorough, and uh, I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Steve, thank you so much. And I really look forward to watching you grow. Like I said in the beginning, I'm a big fan of this technology and I'm looking forward to seeing it come to market. Perfect. Well, thanks for your interest. Thank you, Steve. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. And if you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And if you want to show your support, please share our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.